0: Shall we pray? All right, let's pray. Father, we're grateful to you for every provision you have made for us during this last week. We recognize perhaps a little bit more how dependent we are upon you, and we thank you for every good gift from your hand. Please help us to continue looking to you for provision, for guidance for strength, for courage, and for hope. We ask that your spirit would be our teacher in this hour and the next, that you would build us up by a greater knowledge of you and your ways, and that you would equip us for whatever you have for us in the future. Thank you in your son's name. Amen. Okay. Uh, Many of you noticed as you were coming in that there's a whole pile of notes in the back I think there are probably six different sets of notes. Now, some of those you've already been given. Please, if you can, find out what you've already got and don't take duplicates. All right? The, I think some of them I ordered 10 of each, and the others I ordered 30 of each. If I got it right, the ones I ordered 10 of were the ones that you should already have had. Okay? When you go back and take them off the pile, they're not stapled together. They're kind of staggered like this. So make sure you get a full set and try not to mix up the piles because it's very easy to lose track of what's what. Um, it's It's just too much trouble for the office to staple those. And they recognize that a lot of times you take them and you stick them in a loose leaf notebook and you remove the staples anyway. But there are paper clips back there if you want to pick them up and put a paper clip on to keep a set of notes together. All right? Okay. Tonight we're going to move from theology proper, which is the study of God as a whole, and move on to Christology. And we we may well end up spending some of this first hour and some of the second hour on this topic, because what I have to teach you tonight is rather long. We'll see how it goes. Okay? All right. What is Christology? It's the doctrine of the second person of the Trinity focusing on his person and nature and his works. We're going to focus our time on Christ's incarnation and his sinlessness. There are a lot of other things that we could study about him, but because our time is limited, that's where we're going to put our emphasis. Now, let's just quickly touch on three topics that we really, in a sense, have already covered. Christ is obviously the second person of the Trinity. When we say he's the second person, that reflects functional subordination, not essential subordination. As an eternal person within the eternal Trinity, he's always existed. He has taken on some new names and added to himself a new nature at the Incarnation but he is eternal and divine, just like the Father and the Holy Spirit. We didn't do this last week, right? Okay. Um, Among his names are Jesus, which is a terrible corruption of the Greek pronunciation. In Spanish, when you say Jesus, it's much closer to the Greek. In the Greek, it's Yesu, which actually is very close to Korean, the way the Koreans say it. That's the same name as Joshua, Jehoshua, Jeshua. In the Old Testament, it means Yahweh saves. That's what Jesus' name means. Another title that he used a lot was Son of Man. That term is used in the book of Ezekiel in Psalm 8 to simply describe someone who happens to be human. But in Daniel 7.13, it refers to the Messiah as the Son of Man. And I think... It's in the Messianic sense that Jesus normally uses that title. Liberals will argue that it wasn't Messianic at all, and all that it ever meant was that he was human, but liberals don't believe that Jesus was God. Okay, then the term Son of God is an interesting one, because this label in your Bibles, it wouldn't have the capital S, is sometimes used to describe angels. Okay? Um... It's used to describe believers, right? We are sons of God. We are children of God. Um, Where it refers to Christ, it's expressing, I think, delegated divine authority, his actual deity. And I think it refers, this should be capitalized, to the incarnation as the act of God. In that sense, Christ is the son of God. He was conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit. Okay. Okay. That's all basic stuff. I think you all knew that. That's why we're covering it so quickly. All right, let's move on and talk about the incarnation. The term incarnation means fleshization. You know, chili con carne is chili with meat, okay? Carne in the word incarnation means meat or flesh, all right? The incarnation was the event in which the second person of the Trinity. To hook on an, an additional nature, human nature, without surrendering his divine nature. And that additional human nature was truly human and yet sinless. Now, let me just quickly say, you don't have to be sinful to be human. We know that at least for one point in history before Christ came, that there was someone who was not sinful and was human. Who was that? Adam and Eve, right? They weren't always sinners. Okay. John one fourteen, And the word became flesh. That's where we get that word incarnation. And dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, key concepts regarding the incarnation. The incarnation was an event. Okay? It actually happened at a certain time and it has lasting effects. The incarnation didn't make Jesus any less God. He retained his eternal deity in every way. It involves the addition of a second nature to his person. Now, we don't know anybody who has two natures besides Jesus. And that makes it very difficult for us to understand. It's a unique event. Those two natures, his divine nature and his human nature, are going to be his forever. When Jesus went back to heaven, he didn't stop being human. And when he comes back to earth at his second coming, he will still be human. But he will also still be divine. He's going to be that way forever. And that's really quite fascinating. The means of the incarnation was the virgin birth, and that in itself is a very interesting thing, isn't it? Okay, now let's talk about this thing. Some of you may have heard this term, the kenosis, or the kenotic theory. That term comes from Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery or something to be grasped. To be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. That's that phrase, emptied himself, as it's translated in some Bibles. It's the verb kenao, made himself of no reputation, emptied himself, taking the form of, of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. We'll talk more about the canonic theory. We might get to it tonight. It'll probably be next week, but I want you to have this on the map just so you know that there's, that there's a lot of debate regarding what happened when Jesus came to earth. What did he do with his divine nature? Now, I've already told you that he didn't surrender it, but there's still the interesting question. Did he exercise it? You know, did he tie both hands, both of his divine hands behind his back? You know, twice as good as Rush Limbaugh. You know, um, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about the purposes of the incarnation. And what I'm going to give you here is basically distilled from Scripture with some ideas. I'm not going to give you Scripture bases for these, but I think you'll recognize these are all true. One purpose of the incarnation is that it glorifies God by revealing God's person to us. Okay, We know what God is like because Jesus has come. And knowing what he's like allows us to worship him better. The incarnation reveals God's love for and God's valuation of man. You know, the incarnation was was a tough job. The Lord's life on earth in his first coming ministry was hard, and yet he was willing to do it. The incarnation provides the only sacrifice capable of taking away men's sins. In order for Christ to die for the sins of the human race, he had to become human, because killing a cute little lamb may symbolize a sacrifice for man, but it isn't a real sacrifice for man because men aren't lambs. The incarnation enabled God as a lawgiver to take the initiative to save man from the penalty prescribed by his law. If you want to think about it this way, God had a problem. He is holy and just, and yet this creature that he loves has fallen. And he can't just say, I forgive you, Because if he did that without paying the penalty, he would break his own law, and God doesn't do that. So the incarnation was his solution to that problem. The incarnation provides the means to destroy the works of Satan. Um, Where does it say that Christ? I think it's in the Gospel of John that Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Genesis 3:15, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The incarnation makes it possible for Christ Christ to fully identify with our race in order to mediate, that is, be the go-between, between between us and the Father. That's his high priestly work.
1: And also in order to judge.
0: Remember that speech that Paul gives in Acts 16 or 17 where he says that God has appointed someone to act as judge and he has given notice to man that he is the qualified one by raising him from the dead. Okay, it prepares Jesus to be our mediator and our judge. The incarnation is also necessary for the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Now we won't go into this in a lot of detail here, but when we get to our course on eschatology, you'll see how that works. And finally, the incarnation provides an example of how that should say believers ought to live. In the world. In the book of 1 Peter, over and over again, Peter says, Live this way because Christ left an example for you, an example for us. And, you know, if we sat and talked about it, we could probably think of lots more reasons why Christ came. Now let's talk a little bit about the means of the incarnation. Go to Matthew chapter 1. the means of the incarnation. How did God pull this off? How did it work? Well, in Matthew chapter 1, I think that's supposed to be 1... What? I've got the wrong verse. That's 1.11. No, one sixteen. Okay? At the end of the listing of the genealogical records for Jesus in Matthew 1 and verse 16 it says and Jacob begot Joseph the husband of Mary of whom was born Jesus who is called Christ now this is really interesting this is one place where your English Bible leaves you in the dark when you read that it sounds like of whom was born Mary refers back to Joseph doesn't it but in Greek this word of whom is feminine, and it very clearly refers to Mary. So this genealogy doesn't say that Jesus was born of Joseph. It says that Jesus was born of Mary. Interesting little detail. Now we come to verse 18 and forward down in that same section. She was found with child of the Holy Spirit that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit and Joseph did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. Clear statements of the agency of the Holy Spirit in the conception of Jesus and of the virgin birth. Luke chapter 1, we've got a conversation between Mary and Mary And an angel, in verse 31, he says, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And Mary says, how can this be since I don't know a man? Okay? I'm a virgin. How am I going to end up pregnant? And his answer is, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. The conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary was the action of God. And that's what we mean when we talk about the virgin birth. Now the exact details of that are kind of interesting to speculate about and we will do a little speculating about them. But the basics that Jesus was not the son of Joseph or of any other human man. Those basics are very clear, that Mary was a virgin, that she was not impregnated in the normal way, and that the child that she bore was the result of a divine act. Those are all very clear. Okay, now that was supposed to be bing, 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 sorry. Do you have any questions up till now? I know I'm moving really fast, but I think most of this is pretty familiar to you. Okay. All right. Here's some things we should keep in mind. Mary was a virgin at the conception and the birth of Jesus. Okay? It really was a virgin birth, not just a virgin conception. Mary herself testified to the fact that she was a virgin. The sex of her child was known before he was born. Now today... We take that for granted. But she knew she was going to have a son, and she knew because the angel told her. The Holy Spirit was the angel of her conception. She recognized that her conception was not normal. The conception was supernatural, but the birth was normal. Jesus is stated to be Mary's son, but he's never stated to be Joseph's son in the sense of conception. He's identified as Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. He's described as holy even before he's born. And if we were to read on farther in those birth narratives, it's stated very clearly that he is going to be the son of David. He is the anticipated descendant of David to fulfill the promised role of Messiah. And we already looked at this here. Okay? Now, some further questions come up as we begin to think about the Incarnation. One of them is, how could a sinless son come from the womb of a sinful woman? Now, the Roman Catholics have a solution to that, but we don't like it. Okay. Second question, what parts of Jesus were contributed by Mary and what by the Holy Spirit? Did you ever wonder about that? What exactly is the nature of this incarnate person, Jesus? What's he like? What kind of a person is he? And what is the significance of the genealogies in Matthew and Luke? Let's look at the last question first. And I want to look at that quickly because I don't know the answer. Okay? There are basically four theories as to how we should understand these two genealogies. The first theory is that Matthew's genealogy is Joseph's biological line. I find it hard to accept that one. And that Luke's genealogy is Joseph's legal line. The reason I find this one hard is because of that feminine pronoun we looked at that said, of whom, and it refers to Mary. Okay? Second view is that Matthew's genealogy is Joseph's legal line because Jesus was his adopted son and that Luke's genealogy is Joseph's biological line. Okay, that's kind of a flip. The third view is that Matthew is Joseph's biological line and Luke is Mary's biological line and the fourth one is the flip of that, if I'm not mistaken. You see it? Now, I'm inclined probably to the fourth one, okay? But nobody really knows. And I think it's important to keep in mind that when you're talking about genealogies that go back a long, long way, family trees cross and they intermingle and do all kinds of weird things, okay? Um, Joseph and Mary, even if we view them as the natural parents of Jesus, they're not. But if we're looking at their genealogies, it's quite likely that they have a common ancestor somewhere in their genealogy, probably several. And if you look at this thing and stare at it and mull over it, I mean, there are people who have spent their entire lives trying to figure out how to make sense of those genealogies. There's nothing in the genealogies that doesn't make sense. okay? But understanding exactly why they're given in the way that they're given is difficult. And maybe someday we'll know why. But that's the best I can do for you. Okay? Any questions? I can't answer them, but you can ask them. <laughs> All right. All right. Let's look at questions one and two. How could a sinless son come from the womb of a sinful woman? And what parts of Ma- uh, of Jesus came from Mary and what from the Holy Spirit? Okay. These two questions kind of go together. These has been, okay, you can tell I've been doing some editing. All right, these have been answered in two basic ways. The first view is that Christ did not inherit his human nature from Mary at all. He was a direct creation of God placed in Mary's womb. Mary was a surrogate mother in modern terminology. Okay. That's one view. Right? The other major view is that Christ's human nature came from Mary. In other words, God contributed a sperm, but not the egg. It was Mary's egg. But God sanctified that egg to completely remove the presence of any effects of sin or the fall. Okay? These are the two basic theories that have been offered. Now, which one of these is correct? Correct. We don't know. This is one of many things in Scripture where God tells us the results, but he doesn't tell us the details of the process. It's kind of like inspiration, isn't it? We know that the product of inspiration is inspired and true, and it's God's Word. Exactly how God got it there, we don't know. And the same thing is true here. I think... Personally, I'm inclined to the second one, Okay, because to me, that gives us a little more understanding of how Jesus can be identified with our race. I don't think that this one is unworkable theologically, but this one seems to be more natural to me. But whichever view we take, there are certain errors we need to avoid as we think about this. Okay? And, you know, I haven't heard a feminist jump on this, but this would be a great place for a feminist who wanted to be really vicious theologically to attack men. Okay? Don't make the mistake of thinking that only males are sinful or only men pass on the sin nature. Okay? You could argue that and say, that's how we get a sinless person out of Mary. Because right? the sin comes from the man interesting thought and some you know i have even toyed with this idea because a woman has an has x and y chromosomes i'm sorry a woman has which one x X and x and men have x and y you know and you could say well the sin nature must come from the y chromosome but (laughs) i think that's dangerous okay and i'm not just protecting my half of the race Uh, i think it really is dangerous okay Another idea that we should avoid is the conclusion that Mary had to be sinless since her son was sinless. Now, this is what the Roman Catholic Church argues, right? But you know what? This doesn't solve the problem. And the question is, where do we get a sinless Mary? You're just pushing it backwards, okay? And it actually raises more problems than it solves, because we've got an ordinary member of the human race who now happens to be sinless. And if you read the things that Mary says, she seems to recognize that she's in need of a Savior. So, that's not a good place to go. Okay. Third thing to avoid, don't come to the conclusion that Jesus wasn't really human because he was sinless. Okay? Sinfulness is not intrinsic to humanity. One day we will all be sinless and we will be very human. In fact... You could argue that we will be more human than we are now because we will be what we were designed to be. Fourth thing, don't fall into the argument that Christ could not be our substitute because he is not from our race. Now, this one would particularly go with view A. Okay, If Christ was a direct creation in the womb of Mary, if you held that view, you might say, well, he can't be our substitute, because he's not from our race. You know, I I don't really see a problem, an ultimate problem, with this view. Again, I prefer this one, but I still think that this one is workable. <coughs> okay? Any questions on this? A lot of hard concepts, huh? have I've heard that um, that in our chromosome as women we can only have growth. Right. I mean, you can only do parthenogenesis. Yeah, that, is, that is part of what I've heard of an explanation and also that... Yeah, no, so, some, pe- some people have gone this genetic route. Is that correct? Well, that correct? Well. okay, let me let me tell you why I think it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Okay? It might actually be true, but if it's true, we have to avoid going somewhere where it doesn't point. Mm-hmm. Okay. One issue there is the idea that if a woman doesn't pass on the sinful nature, if it comes through the man, that means that woman isn't sinful. Okay? Now, that isn't true. Okay? But there's a temptation to say that since a woman only has the sinless chromosome, that she's sinless. I think that would be a false conclusion. Well, the idea is that if woman, if woman do, if woman's chromosomes don't provide a sinful nature to her children, if the sinful nature comes from the father, okay, then the woman's chromosome doesn't have any sin associated with it okay now I don't think that's a valid conclusion, but some people have gone in that direction now the next problem that comes up is this um, what happens if we clone a woman? You know, do you end up with a sinless being? You know, there's the whole question of do, do clones have souls, and I think a very simple answer to that is absolutely they do, because cloning has been happening since the foundation of the world. It's called twins. And I'm not sure that they use that exactly to say that women are sinless. Well, I, 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 hope, I hope they not. don't. But more to say that... Right. Women cannot in any way... Uh, pass on a man. sinful nature. Well, okay. It's th- that not a sinful nature, which is pass on a, you know, the explanation I've heard is more of uh, women that God was involved in it because it's a book And there was no contact with men. Well, well... except that... Go ahead. Eve was created from, the Adam, from Adam's rib. That's right. Mm-hmm. He was the divine creation... God, and That's right. And was made from man. So. That's right. I mean, you know, you look at all these things. You look at that and you look at the incarnation. I mean, gen- nobody knew anything about genetics when the Pentateuch was written. But guess what? You can make a woman from a man, but you can't make a man from a woman. You know? It's right there. It's built in. Okay, then we get to the incarnation and we're tempted to go, you know, to, to explore these avenues. And I'm not saying that it can't be true. It might be true. I'm just saying that for us to conclude that that's how it happened is presumptuous and there's the danger that somebody's going to push that in the wrong direction. That's all I'm saying. Rebecca? Well, how could Eve have sinned if she didn't have a sinful nature? Well, neither Adam or Eve had a sinful nature when they sinned. Adam and Eve were the only human beings in history who became sinners as a result of sinning. Okay? It's that interesting thing that happened. Adam and Eve were innocent before they sinned. And the best conclusion that we could come to is that when they sinned, God actually changed their natures. So they not only had a history of having sinned, but they now became sinful in their essence, and I can't come to any other conclusion but that God made that happen. Okay, this is not something the Scripture talks a lot about. Um, I've never heard another way of, expl- of explaining it, but nobody seems to talk about it a lot. But you know, when 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 death came to the human race you know, as a result of the fall, Adam and Eve began this process of physical aging that would result in their physical death. I believe that before the fall that would not have happened. Or at least that it could have been prevented by happening if they had been eating of the fruit of the tree of life. But as a result of their choice to sin, and you say to me, well, how can an innocent person choose to sin? I don't know the answer to that question, but they did. Okay, As a result of that choice, it seems that God actually changed their natures and that was part of the penalty of the fall. And, and I think in that package was the introduction of an essential sin nature into them that they have passed on to us. He's both our federal and our seminal head. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay, the idea that the sin nature comes through Adam. Yeah, I know. It, it's it's very tempting to make these conclusions, okay? And, and I think they're instant speculations. And again, I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying we can't prove them from Scripture. And to assume that they are right just because they seem like they may be right could get us into trouble somewhere else, okay? You know, I, I keep on saying to you all the time, I don't know. And the reason is, I do not want to go beyond what Scripture teaches. I think we have been told what we need to know, but there are many things that we don't need to know that our curiosity would like to know, that God says, sorry, I'm just not going to tell you. And, and I think, while it's interesting to speculate at times, it's also dangerous to speculate. People get in trouble by speculating because they take their speculations and they push them farther and they end up somewhere where they shouldn't go. And that's why I put up the things that I just put up. So we don't do that. Okay? This is what I think is responsible Bible study and theology. Don't go beyond what the Scripture teaches. Do you have a question? Okay. All right. Let's talk about the nature of Christ okay I'm going to skip over the evidence of scripture that Christ was both divine and human I think you've all seen that the question that arises is how those two natures, a divine nature and a human nature which are very different could be united in one person now that union is called the hypostatic union and it comes from the Greek word hypostasis which means which means um sort of substance but not exactly substance. It has to do with the two natures being brought together. You can think of it as meaning the union of two natures. Okay, A bunch of questions naturally arise. What does it mean to say that Christ is both divine and human? How did his human nature affect the divine nature and vice versa? Are there really two persons in him or just one? Did he have two wills? Does the Incarnation disprove the immutability of God? There are some people who are upset about this. Okay, Remember what the immutability of God is? God doesn't change. Well, sorry, but at the Incarnation, God did change, I think, and yet I'm de- not denying the doctrine of the immutability of God, and you'll see why in a little while. Okay, Let's recap some things. The nature of something is the sum total of its essential qualities. And a person is a complete being endowed with intellect, emotions, and will who is responsible for his actions. Just so we know what we're talking about when we talk about nature and person. Okay? All right, let's look at these questions just a little bit. What does it mean to say that Jesus is both divine and human? Well, it means that there are two... Natures present in one person. This is unusual, but it's not necessarily illogical. Look what Paul said. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. It's difficult to understand, but it's true. He was justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among Gentiles, believed on in the world... uh, believed on in the world, I've got a lot of typos here, and received up in glory. Paul didn't find it easy to understand, but he proclaimed it because it was revealed to him by God. You never see the plural used in reference to Christ. Now, we've got Elohim in the Old Testament, which is a plural of majesty used to refer to God, but never is Christ referred to in the plural, like there are two persons in him or something like that. The evidence is that he is one person. Second question, how uh, does human nature affect the divine and vice versa? Well, the answer seems to be that the natures retain their individual identities, although they are united in one person. You don't have a melding of these two identities. The human nature and the divine nature don't lose their separate natures. I guess that's a redundant statement. Okay. Now, think about this. Some actions like redemption involve both natures, right? Christ went to the cross in his divinity and in his humanity. And he had to be divine to pay the penalty, but he also had to be human to pay the penalty. Some actions only involve his divine nature, like his pre-existence, what he did before he was incarnate. <laughs> Some of them only involve the human nature. Jesus was hungry and thirsty and tired. His divine nature wasn't hungry and thirsty and tired, but his human nature was. Okay. His human attributes were, were graced by union with the divine. I think we have to argue that this is true. Now, when we get to the question of how was it that Jesus remained sinless, one of the theories will be that because his humanity was joined to his deity, his deity could never go into sin, and the humanity was sort of dragged along with it in holy living, if you want to think of it that way. That's one of the theories. Okay, that's why I put a question mark here, because not everybody would agree with that. Now, the two natures retain their individual identities, but the attributes of these two separate natures are attributed to one person. So Jesus was both localized in his humanity. You know, when he's in this room, he's not in the next room. But in his deity, when he's here, he's also on Alpha Centauri, right? He doesn't stop being omnipresent. But his human nature isn't omnipresent. Okay? These things, you know, they kind of sprain your brain, but if you stop and think about them, again, you can make sense of them in the sense that you can say, well, his divine nature could do things that his human nature didn't do, but it was still him. Christ retains today, and he always will, his human nature. We talked about this before. The incarnation is a permanent thing. All right, third question. Are there really two persons in Christ or just one? Well, I would argue that if Christ, if the second person of the Trinity, was one person before the incarnation, he has to remain one person after the incarnation. Otherwise, we have gone to a quantity... Not a twin... Not a... Not a twinity.
1: <laughs> not a...
0: Not a trinity. Right? I mean, there would be an essential change in the nature and attributes of God if, as a result of the incarnation, Christ became two persons. Right? Can you see that? Okay. And that's all I can say about that one, honestly. Did Christ have two wills? Well, this is an interesting one. We're inclined to say no, since sovereign will is an attribute of divinity. And I'm sorry. We're inclined to say no, but since sovereign will is an attribute of divinity and moral will is an attribute of humanity, the church has historically said yes, Christ had two wills and does have two wills. However, because the two natures are united in one person, it's best to recognize that they always operate in unison without conflict. Now, you asked me to explain this and I can't explain it, but you know what? There's an interesting parallel here between how the members of the Trinity work together, isn't there? There are three Distinct persons sharing one essence, and each one of those persons has intellect, emotions, and will, and yet they never fight with each other, they never disagree, there's never a scuffle in heaven. Okay? So you could argue that there are three wills in the Trinity as far as the three persons of the Trinity are concerned. So, why can there not be two wills in Christ? Okay, now, you may be really surprised, but this is what orthodox theologians have concluded, that there really are two wills in Christ because there are two natures in him. And how you're going to have a person with two wills is interesting. Biggie. Well, I, I think in the garden at Gethsemane, Christ's human will recognized what was coming, um, and I, you know, I think in his humanity, he was praying to the Father, "If this cup can be taken away from me, please do it." But you notice there that even though he asked that question, he never decided or chose to disobey the Father. And, in, you know, I think his divine will was saying, this is what I've got to do. And his human will was just sort of, you know, crossing the T's and checking out the details. Um, and his human will went along with his divine will. Um, could it be that one sort of lagged after the other at times? Maybe. Maybe that's what was happening. But they always stuck together. You know again, this is one of those mysteries um yeah that's an interesting that's an interesting idea I mean, you know they ultimately they always have to go to the same place, although you know one may be slightly behind the other one um, you know th- there are a lot of things that are difficult to understand here, but I think if we recognize that because the two natures were possessed by one person and because the human nature was sinless and because Christ in his human nature was as much devoted to doing the will of the Father as Christ in his divine nature was devoted to doing the will of the Father, Mm -hmm. that there was a cooperation and they just sort of went together. But that's about the best I can say. Anybody else? Lynn? I think that he, um, his prayer was to just a lot of surrender. Absolutely. You know, it, Absolutely. Like, a never, like, I, I agree 100%. It's 100%. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a remarkable prayer. And it may well be that one of the purposes of it was for those who were watching and those who would hear about it later. Mm. Okay, last question. What slide are we up to? Fourteen. Oh, we're not doing too badly. Okay. Does the incarnation disprove the immutability of God? Well, none of the Son's divine attributes changed. And thus he remains immutable. Okay, the immutability of God is a doctrine that says that God's divine attributes don't change. Well, none of his divine attributes did change. <laughs> He added to himself a nature, but he never lost or changed any of the attributes of the divine nature that he already had. Now, if this seems like a word game to you, I, I can't say it's not a word game, but I think there's a reason that we define immutability the way that we do, that his divine attributes don't change. Okay? Now, There is a sense in which God changes. God changes in his relationship to his creation, doesn't he? God has a history, right? At least viewed from our perspective. You know, before the cross, God did not have a history of having had his son die. After the cross, he did have that history, you know? Before God revealed certain things, he wasn't known to men in certain ways. Afterward, he was. So in that sense, God changes. But he doesn't change in his divine attributes. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about immutability. Gary? What would you do to Christophanes in um, the Old Testament? Well, if you take him as um what's the problem? What's the really, question? Did, he didn't. I mean, he had a different human nature. Of yeah, course, he had a body and like such. When? When he was on Earth for 34 30, 30, 30 years. Okay, but before that? No, but it was uh, I guess all you're saying all his attributes were the same, even though his physical form I might not have been the same. Well, he had no physical form before the incarnation. That's what I mean. Okay. yeah Yeah. Now, but you said, what about the Christophanies? I mean, assuming that was Christ. Yeah. He still had all the attributes that God has. Right. It was just, he didn't have a body. but He took on a visible human form for the purpose of revelation to people, kind of like the Father did walking in the garden, you know, in Genesis chapter 3. I mean, there are a number of places, particularly in the Old Testament, where God takes on visible form. There are places where angels take on visible form. On have fish. Um it would have had to be a miracle if he did it. It wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been a human nature, you know, it wouldn't have been a human being consuming fish. But yeah. Other questions? Can you give me five more minutes before the break to finish the next four slides and then we'll take a break and make up for it okay putting together what we've seen and giving it a label the union of the divine and human natures is called the hypostatic union the council of Chalcedon in the 400s said this in the incarnation of the son of God a human nature was inseparably joined forever with the divine nature in the person of Jesus Christ yet with the two natures remaining distinct, whole and unchanged without mixture or confusion so that the one person Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. Okay? That's the classic statement of the doctrine of the incarnation. Okay. The last thing I want to do is go through this chart. These are some false views of the nature of the incarnation, and then the true view, and by looking at these it'll kind of expose some of the ideas we're looking at. Okay, the docetists and gnostics, docetists it means the people who think Jesus only seemed to be human, that's where that word docetic comes from it means to seem. They said his human nature merely appeared to be human, he really wasn't human he was kind of a ghost But they said he was divine They were essentially denying the incarnation by saying he he didn't take on a human nature. Now, the Ebionites in the second century said that Jesus did have a human nature, but they denied that he had a divine nature. This is also called adoptionism. They would argue that when Jesus was baptized by John and the Holy Spirit came down from heaven, that was actually God, who they say isn't a trinity taking up residence in the body of jesus and he stayed in the body of jesus until just before the cross and then he left okay those are people who deny the trinity this is called adoptionism i think it's also called cerinthianism if i'm not mistaken this is another false understanding of who christ was now the arians were kind of like them they said that christ was truly human but he was like God, but he really wasn't God. Okay, In some way, he fell short of God. I think they believed that he was a created being with divine kinds of powers, but he wasn't eternally God. The I misspelled that. The Apollinarians in the 4th century, they argued that Jesus had only a human body and soul that was joined to the Logos, the Logos being the divine part, but they said that he didn't really have a human spirit. So he wasn't a complete human being. In other words, Jesus sort of had the the, uh, hardware of a human being, but not the spirit of a human being. Right? Now, the Nestorians believed that Christ was both human and divine, But they said it's not one person with two natures, it's two separate people who somehow walk around together. All right? That one's... This is harder than the doctrine we're defending, isn't it? How do you have two persons in one body? You know, schizophrenia... um, That one's really hard to swallow. The Eutychians in the 5th century said that Christ was not fully human and he was not fully divine. He had only one nature that was partly divine and one that was partly human. Now remember in the previous slide we read the, the uh, description of the hypostatic union from Chalcedon and they said two separate natures that are not mixed or intermingled in any way. That was aimed directly at this heresy. Okay, The monothelites monothelite means people who believe there's only one will okay? it basically means the one willers they argued that Christ was not fully human and was not fully divine they're kind of like these guys but they went further and they said that he only had one single will alright now the orthodox view the view that we hold today is that Christ was completely human and completely divine Okay. This is all in your notes. It's not the kind of thing I expect you to remember. Got one last slide, and we'll quit. Okay. The kenosis, as we mentioned, is the emptying of Christ mentioned in Philippians two seven. Some radical theories say that he gave up his divine nature. He just stopped being divine. Okay. Sort of his personality was removed from the second person of the trinity and stuck on a human body, but he was no longer divine. Some said that he completely cut off communication with his divine nature, sort of like his divine nature went into suspended animation. Some say he laid aside his incommunicable attributes while exercising his communicable ones. Do you remember what communicable attributes are? They're the ones that we as human beings have that God has. Okay? Such as intellect, emotion, and will. We're not omniscient, right? But we can know things. We're not omnipresent, but we can be somewhere. One view is that he laid apart laid aside his incommunicable attributes and only exercised the communicable ones. The problem with that is that Jesus did a lot of miracles, didn't he? He seemed to exercise his divine powers in some cases. And I think we should reject these views on the basis of the following observations Christ's emptying was about the role he took not about his essence or attributes he did retain his divine nature at all times i think it's true that he voluntarily submitted all of his actions to the father but that was both his divine and the human actions i don't think i personally don't think that Jesus ever performed a miracle without at least in his head asking the Father if he wanted him to do it or having been instructed to do it ahead of time. Okay, His taking on of an additional human nature did not require the surrendering of his divine nature. You can't prove that it's impossible for the two of them to be, be together. And finally, the fact that he was exalted after his time on earth and that's mentioned in Philippians 2 argues that he never gave up his divine nature. Because if he did give it up we'd have to argue that he emptied himself and then he filled himself again. And there's nothing in Philippians 2 to suggest that at the end of his time on earth he sort of reintroduced his divine attributes back into himself after having given them up. Okay? So I think that what Philippians 2 is teaching is basically that Christ chose not to exercise his divine powers without doing so in submission to the Father, but he never gave them up. Okay? Any questions before we break?